Cinco de Mayo plus one makes this May the 6th, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast, and I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, talking about Gal, talking about RA, and talking about changing numbers, and what in the world is Jackney? Jackney? Yeah, that's right, Jackney. I was looking up some data this week about gout and was surprised to see recent estimates of gout have gone up. Not surprising, given that the rates and numbers of gout have gone up every decade for the last three decades. And that's really a societal issue and obesity issue and whatnot. As you know, gout is one of the most common of rheumatic disorders, previously estimated at 8.1 million Americans, I believe. And now the numbers are probably over 10 million, with about 4% of the population afflicted with gout. This particular report said that this is not really a white man's disease anymore. This, this the Gout tends to preferentially be a greater risk for Native Hawaiians who have more than a twofold risk, and then followed by African Americans and Japanese, but lower in Latinos compared to whites, in fact, about 22% lower. So... Gout is changing, and as our society is changing, and it reflects that. Uh, I posted some data this week about hyperuricemia as a potential biomarker. We previously reported, I believe it was an ACR ULAR report that showed that if you looked at gout patients with hyperuricemia, you saw worse disease and worse manifestations of disease. Um, so this particular study had uh, looked at 242 PSA patients, 30% of whom had hyperuricemia, and only 6% had um, gout. This is a study of PSA patients. Um, and they did show that in PSA, hyperuricemia was associated with being older, having more comorbidities, having more peripheral arthritis, more peripheral arthritis that was in fact erosive and destructive. And oh my, less response to therapy. Why would you not serially look at uric acid as a useful biomarker in your patients with PSA? Not just gout, but also PSA. I'm doing it. You should too. Be like me, maybe not. Anyway, uh, a Canadian study looked at 6,000 pregnancies that were associated with PCR tests positive for COVID uh, and showed, as we have reported in the past, that Pregnancy and COVID is not a good mix. And because you're pregnant doesn't mean you shouldn't get vaccinated. You should. The numbers of uh, pregnant women who have been vaccinated is abysmally low, less than half the population numbers. Um, but in this study of 6,000 patients, they showed um, a two and a half fold higher risk of hospitalization and a five and a half fold higher risk of ICU admission if you're pregnant and PCR positive for COVID-19. Um, pregnant women who have COVID-19 are also at higher risk for preterm births. Another interesting study of pregnancy came from the Danish registry um, that looked at psoriasis and pregnancy association. So in their uh, registry case control study of over almost a half million people, they showed that psoriasis as a diagnosis was a show associated with a significantly higher risk of ectopic pregnancies. That's a new finding for me. A lot of inflammatory arthritis, inflammatory diseases, you know, more preterm births, more miscarriages, more um, small for gestational age is very common. RA, lupus, all of our conditions. This particular report of ectopic pregnancies, a 34% higher risk compared to women without psoriasis, 
um, was surprising. And that rate goes up to 2.7-fold odds ratio. If you look at psoriasis, that was classified as being moderate to severe. So think about that. Um, ectopic pregnancy may be uh, uh, an untoward effect of uncontrolled psoriasis. Uh I don't know if you saw this study this week, but I had to report it. It was a bizarro um, intervention trial, but it was a well-done double-blind trial showing that adalimumab injections, intranodular injections of adalimumab in patients with Dupuytren's contractures was effective. What? Now, I've injected TNF inhibitors in places I probably wasn't supposed to, like joints and skin, not with any consistent benefit, but... In this particular study, phase 2B, double-blind randomized control trial, 140 patients with Dupuytren's contracture. They didn't have early disease as was one of their points of the paper that it might work well in early disease. Uh, patients going into this had like 6 to 10 years of disease activity um, or disease duration, I should say. But they actually injected the adalimumab into the nodule. The, the nodular swelling of Dupuytren's in the palm and showed a significant reduction in nodule size and nodule hardness. Now, I'm not sure these are good measures, but my goodness, I'm surprised at the result. Am I going to be doing this in my patients? No way, Ray. Um, you know, the people who make uh, the collagenase injection for Dupuytren's contractors and the nodular changes of Dupuytren's, uh, that product is called Zyaflex, they, they went to a bunch of rheumatologists trying to get us interested in doing those. But if you saw the procedure, you know, you had to inject it into the nodule and then you had to hit it with a Bible and see blood squirt all over the place. And, um, and I'm being dramatic, of course, but it was a little barbaric for my taste. And no, I wasn't going to do that. But I do think that the collagenase injections are preferable to having the hand surgery, which have not so good a long-term efficacy rate. Um, and a lot of them need resurgery. Now, that's not what the hand surgeons tell you, but guess what business they're in? Um, maybe this is an advance, um, and that's why we report it here. So another advance in care is the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning. It's been applied to x-rays, and maybe those of us who don't have an ex uh, expert musculoskeletal radiologist on staff, on hand, nearby, um, to read our films, maybe we can use this future, this technology in the future. It's going to evolve. It's not quite that yet there. Um, an interesting uh, report from Georg Schett's group and others looked at neural networks in reading um, high-res quantitative CT scans of the hands. And they looked at the MCP2. And they did a bunch of scans. They looked at 932 scans in 617 patients. And they used the neural network learning to classify patients according to the morphologic changes of that second MCP2 head to make a diagnosis of being a normal healthy control or an RA patient or a patient with PSA. And it turns out their accuracy based, based on area under the curve was the was 82% for normals, 75% for RA, 68% for PSA. When they took a bunch of patients who had undifferentiated arthritis, they came up with diagnoses of RA in 86%, PSA 11%, and, and normal in 3%. I find this interesting. But you got to get a high-res CT. And no, this is not available at, a, at an imaging center nearby you. But I think that this is the way we're going in the future using big data, in this case, neural networks, which is sort of a different thing than using just machine learning 
to develop these kind of um, algorithms to make better diagnosis. Uh, Stills disease, a cohort of 71 patients, they tried to classify those who had poor responses that were measured at four weeks. Again, if you're doing well with systemic JIA, Stills disease, you should have a prompt response to either steroids or a biologic like an IL-1 inhibitor, IL-6 inhibitor. That's pretty quick, is it not? Well, in this particular study of 71 patients, they use high-dose steroids. And I would agree, these are high-dose. Some of them were pulse steroids, but most of them were just high-dose. Um, and they had a failure rate of 41% at four weeks. I don't like that number. And I would then ask the question, are they really treating Stills disease? You never really know in these particular reports. But their predictors of a better outcome was having a white count of less than 13 thousand like 13.5 and by the way that's about the average elevated white count that you see in stills disease now stills disease doesn't shouldn't have a normal white count or a low white count i want to say that again stills disease doesn't have and shouldn't have a normal white count or an a low white count like you know less than four most, the average white count still sees about 12 to 15,000. In their study, if you had a, a white count of less than 13,000, you had a 60% response rate. However, if it was greater than 13,000, it was only a 23% response rate. So you might think about that when confronted with who you're going to treat and maybe who you're going to use a biologic in as first line. I found a nice report uh, about um, an increasing number of ACPA negative rheumatoid factor patients that are out there. This has been seen in a few different studies, um, including a recent Mayo Clinic one. Uh, and this particular study uh, confirmed this in their report, showing that ACPA negative RA is increasing in its prevalence in the population, but ACPA positive RA is not. And these authors were suggesting that that increase may well be due to aging. We do know that seropositivity does go up with age, um, and so does the, the prevalence of RA. You know, population prevalence in you and I is like 0.5% to 1% of the population, but a population over 60, it goes up significantly, 2, 3, 4%. Um, you know, rheumatoid factors go up from 5% to 15% when you look at an, an elderly population. But in this study, again, it's an, an aging population, which we are. You might see more ACPA negative patients. You need to be clear that it really is RA, even though it is um, an ACPA that you're testing for, the, the diagnosis is going to be made on clinical grounds. Um, Leflunamide is a commonly used DMARD, and um, do we have a drug level that we can monitor there? You know, we do have certain drug levels we could monitor for efficacy. This is T TDM, therapeutic drug monitoring, until recently not shown to be effective when it comes to monitoring at alimumab levels and predicting out or infliximab levels and predicting outcome. We had a recent report that said that that might be the way to go, and that's what they do in GI. But we have other drugs, hydroxychloroquine, azathioprine, and now leflunamide. In this particular report, um, the investigators looked at 115 leflunamide-treated patients, 40% of whom achieved either low disease activity or remission and they followed the M1 metabolite of leflunamide, also called A77-1726. That's the 
marker, the, the, the tablet you measure for if you want to show someone that has no leflinamide in their system if they're pregnant. So if you look at the package insert, it'll tell you what the protocol is and that you, when you get below a certain level on this A77-1726 M1 metabolite, then you can say that it's washed out. Well, the same metabolite could be used as a drug, well, maybe therapeutically. And in this study, they showed that there was a negative association between DAS scores and the um, M1 metabolite, and that levels above 10 micrograms per ml um, basically predicted um, a low disease activity state of 70%. A negative predictive value, meaning if you weren't that, of 93%. Uh, the idea here is that this is yet another drug um, level that could be used therapeutically if we were to switch as a discipline to a um, metabolite or a drug level um, a set of a practice where we use these in therapeutic decision making about whether to push drug more or to check for compliance and whatnot. I think this is at its, in its infancy and should be tested in other groups. Another interesting study of RA patients, a small study, 33 patients, but half of them had peripheral neuropathy, most of whom were sensory motor neuropathies. Um, and it wasn't related to activity or age here. So um, neuropathy we see in our patients, it should be looked for. It could be a complication of um, of RA, and it tends to be that tends to be seen more in zero positive people historically, but do we really know that that's true? We have three more reports. One, um, upadacitinib was FDA approved a week ago for use in ankylosing spondylitis. Those are patients who have not had an adequate trial to a TNF inhibitor or and or non-steroidals. As you know, this is going to have the same warnings as does uh, upadacitinib for other diseases, meaning you got to fail a TNF inhibitor before you get this. This goes along with all the safety um, warnings on jacks that occurred over the summer um, or in the last year surrounding the TOFA oral surveillance study. So yes, the same risks and warnings are here. You must you know, be a candidate. You must have failed the TNF inhibitor first. Um, you must have moderate to active disease, not otherwise controlled. And then you know, the same concerns are out there. Again, the concerns about um, VTE um, cardiovascular events and cancer tend to be older individuals with high-risk more um, uh, comorbidities. Um, I wrote an article yesterday about JACNI. The title of the article was Acne with JAK Inhibitors. This was brought to my attention at Room Now Live where um, Dr. Ken Gordon uh, mentioned this uh, in his talk that um, this is a maybe a downside to using JAKs in dermatology. Um, and uh, and that they're seeing some of these reports. So, as you know, the JAKs have been approved for a number of conditions, right? RA, PSA, ulcerative colitis, um, TOFA for polyarticular JIA, uh, more recently, uh, atopic dermatitis and enclosing spondylitis. But the JAK inhibitors are widely being investigated, especially in a lot of dermatologic conditions where JAK-STAT is upregulated and expressed in those conditions and therefore making it um, a reasonable target. Um, if you look at the clinical trials in RA, PSA, you know, ulcerative colitis, the number of patients who have acne as an adverse event was pretty low. It's generally about some studies less than 1% and other studies about 2%, but it's really, really low. Only recently with the approval of um, the JAKs in atopic dermatitis where higher doses are being used 
um, often the unapproved doses for RA and, and PSA, uh, higher doses are often being used. And there they're seeing a higher rate of acne, as rate, as high, rates as high as 15 to 20%. So what do you do about this? Well, good news is that um, it's a nuisance. Um, it's usually mild to moderate acne. It usually never, it hasn't led to drug discontinuation. And most of the dermatologists are treating this as they normally would with tetracycline, topicals, etc. I like this uh, last report from the BSRBR, the British um, Biologics Registry, uh, about the use, the serial use of either biologics or targeted synthetics in RA. So they looked at their registry that had um, 10,000 patients. Um, actually, it's probably 30,000 patients, but there were 10,000 plus who tried a second line drug, um, to 5,000 who tried a third line drug, 2,000 a fourth line, six, 700, 800 a fifth line, and 300 a sixth line biologic or targeted synthetics. And they looked at outcomes of achieving remission or LDAS. And, you know, I've always said that with your first new advanced in intervention, a biologic, for instance, like a TNF inhibitor, you expect to see a 60-40-20 ACR 20-50-70 response. But that as you use subsequent, you know, drugs and switch because you fail, develop toxicity, you, you know, it ratchets down. It ratchets down from 60-40-20 to 50-30-15 and then 40-whatever. And so... And actually, this this particular study, observational study, um, shows says that's not true. It does go down, but it plateaus. So if you look at DAS remissions uh, in this particular uh, uh, analysis, 17% of the time they, with these biologics and targets, they achieved a DAS remission with first-line drug use. With second-line drug use, it was 13%. It went down a little bit. With Third through sixth, it was 8 to 13%. It didn't go down that much more. And for low-dose activity state, with first-line drug use, like your first TNF inhibitor, you achieve an LDA in, this, in their study 30% of the time. With a second drug, it was 23%. But then, again, um, third through sixth, 17 to 22%. Suggesting that you do plateau, suggesting that there might be a value to ongoing use of a third, fourth, fifth other TNF or biologic or JAK inhibitor going forward. So it says that there's hope, although there is still declining hope. Now, you as a rheumatologist have never-ending hope. You know, a chance to prescribe is a chance to cure. That's the rheumatologist motto, motto or moto if you live in Dallas, Texas. I want to remind all of you that next week we have the Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Again, a replay, another session from um, the Room Now Live meeting in April, uh, sorry, in March, where this time we're going to discuss the session on psoriatic arthritis advances um, featuring t uh, excerpts from talks by Artie Kavanaugh, Bruce Kirkham, and Alexis Ogdi. We're talking about guidelines, better drugs, and re registries and real-world data. I hope you'll sign up. You can watch us via live stream on your favorite social media channel. So we're going to live stream to YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Or you can just sign up for the webinar and be there on Zoom and ask questions. You, oh, by the way, you can ask your questions on the live stream, and we'll answer them also on the broadcast. We'll see you Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. That would be 4 p.m. Pacific. 
See you then, folks. Bye.